The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. The world's great wisdom traditions can be harnessed for personal transformation and also social transformation. Hey, everyone. From LinkedIn News, this is In the Arena, a podcast exploring human potential. I'm Leah Smart, and every week you'll find me right here in conversation with bright minds and brave hearts, learning how we can improve our lives and our world by transforming ourselves. And you're about to hear from the incredibly dynamic Rain Wilson. You know him. Dwight from The Office. You might not know that he co-founded the company Soul Pancake. They make stuff that matters. And he's written a new book called Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution, as well as released a new show on Peacock called The Geography of Bliss. Rain is on a mission to show us all how spirituality doesn't have to be inaccessible and that, in fact, a connection to ourselves, something greater, and to each other is what will transform our lives from feeling lost or tossed around by the latest headlines to retethered and grounded. This conversation, unreal. So let's get to it. Here's Rain. Hello, Rain. Hi, Leah. How are you? <laughs> it's great to see you, and I am doing very well. I loved Rochelle's tea up. That was um, a... and she stole my quote. Oh no, <laughs> that was a rousing introduction. I haven't had a better introduction. This this better be good. Now I'm feeling the pressure is on. It better be good. What, I mean, what quote I had, did she um, steal? You know, it bears beats Battlestar Galactica. You were going to use it. <laughs> yeah. It was going to be one of those, or it was going to be something about how identity theft is not a myth. Um, I, number one, of course, I'm so excited for this opportunity to chat with you. And I love getting to learn the holistic kind of you, right? People know you as Dwight Schrute and as many other roles and in the work that you've done. But uh, this to me is actually some of the most interesting, although I will say I have watched every episode of The Office more than once. Um, I can't wait to just hear about what you're doing. So I am so excited to talk to you, Rain, because a lot of what you're talking about are the things that I'm thinking about. And I found myself as I was reading the book going, yes, yes, yes. Um, so thank you for the work you're doing. But of course, we have to start with some quick questions to tie in Dwight, which are, number one, if Dwight Schrute and you were to switch lives for the day, what is the first thing you think Dwight would do as Rain Wilson? <laughs> what would Dwight Schrute do as Rain Wilson? That's good. I'm not just saying that. That is, I've heard a lot of office Rain <laughs> linked questions before that is pretty superlative well we have a couple of pet pigs leah pot-bellied pigs in our backyard <laughs> dwight would probably slaughter them first thing he'd be like yes. this is meat why are we coddling these little pigs and he would slaughter them and bloodlet them and turn them into jerky or bacon post haste <laughs> and that is what makes you so different <laughs> <laughs> Pet pigs. Love it. I've watched so much of The Office. I'm sure so many people have. And I think what's great is that because of the character that you played and because of the notoriety it has, you have this, you know, powerful ability to use the fact that you are out there in the world to share something that is so meaningful. So I'm really curious, like, how did you transition from thinking about Dwight Schrute and playing that role for a decade plus to 
Soul Pancake and now Soul Boom and the work you're doing? Yeah, you know, it's such an important question because I imagine there's a lot of head scratching going on out there. Like, wait, 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 what? The guy, the paper salesman, beat farmer, why is he talking about spirituality? What soul, what's going on? And it's the question with which I launched my book. Why the hell is the guy who played Dwight writing a book on spirituality? And, you know, not to give the entire you know, book away, but essentially for a number of different reasons. One, I grew up a member of the Baha'i faith, and I won't get into that here or now, but essentially if you're boiling it down, the Baha'is believe in the religious sanctity of all religious faiths. So as a Baha'i, we studied the Quran and the Bhagavad Gita and the Bible, and uh, we drew on lots of different faith traditions. So I grew up in a household that really valued deep, meaningful, probing, mystical, philosophical, sociological conversations about the meaning of life. So we talked about the soul and what happens when we die and do we have free will and is there a God? And if there is a God, how does that work? And countless other questions of the mystery of being alive. When you combine this with kind of a mental health crisis that I had that I, you know, I continued to battle with, but that I really came up against in my 20s, where I was dealing with anxiety, with depression, with loneliness, uh, alienation, addiction, so many issues that contemporary young folk are dealing with. When I was struggling with that, I turned to spirituality as a possible solution for my own personal transformation, for my solace, for redemption, for meaning. And I read lots of the works of the Buddha and Baha'i texts and other holy texts because I firmly believed then, and I believe now, that the world's great wisdom traditions can be harnessed for personal transformation and also social transformation. And just to end up by saying, I also wrote Soul Boom, and I'm invested in this way of thinking and these kind of big ideas, life's biggest possible questions, because I really think humanity needs them now more than ever, and that they can help us grow, shift, and mature and gain wisdom as a species on the planet. I am listening to you talk about this. I have felt this so resonantly for a long time. And I really resonated with the piece of the book where you talked about the fact that your own challenges with mental health actually led you more out of necessity to move into a place of rediscovering and redefining spirituality. I was exactly the same. It was necessity. It wasn't some like I was delivered some, some random speech on a hill, I think is what you said. It's that really I was like, I need something that's more powerful than anything I've experienced before that can give me a a deeper sense of meaning and purpose. Mm. And earlier today, I was speaking to someone who was like, you know, in your work, you know, I've been doing this for five years or so, what has changed uh, post pandemic? And I said, really, it's just that we need it even more. Mm. We need it even more. And so it sounds like what you're saying is not only is your book about the fact that there are all of these ancient wisdoms that we maybe don't know about, or don't feel are accessible that can give us power in a way that's different than grabbing at the external things, but also that the context is really important. Yeah, 100%. Spoiler alert, I'm going to jump to the very end of the book. And one of the things that I arrived at in the writing of this book, one of the things I arrived at with this new TV show that I'm hosting called The Geography of Bliss, 
is that we thrive in connection. We thrive in community. I know everyone knows this. Everyone gets it. I mean, you have a company called LinkedIn. <laughs> You're trying to link people and connect people and build community. But it's crucial to understand that we don't thrive on our own. And it's in relation to others that we come to our best selves. So there was a famous study called the Grant Study out of Harvard University, and there's a number of books that have come out about it and podcasts about it. And it was an 80-year study of 300 people about what it means to live a good life. And at the end of the day, that's the one thing they boiled it down to. It's, it's community and it's connection. So post-pandemic, we realize that now more than ever. And our community and our connection, especially in contemporary America, I'm not sure how many employees are in other countries. We live in a very fractured state right now and building ever more consultation, cooperation is integral to our progress. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I loved your book and I saw it and I went, oh my God, I'm so excited. And I also went, God, I hope that people will not freak out about the word soul mm. or about spirituality. So I want to know from you before we go any further, how do you define spirituality and how can we do that in such a way that maybe it removes some of the inaccessibility or like previous experience that we've had? Or should we even be removing it? I don't know. Okay. So great question. And thank you for asking that. And there might be some people right now kind of rolling their eyes saying like, Hey, I'm an atheist or I'm agnostic. I don't want to talk about this stuff in a business context and a big ideas context, but I think it is important to define our terms, right? Because for some people, spirituality means ghosts and seances, right? Spirits. Mm -hmm. For some people, it's a kind of vague feeling that you get at a yoga class or with incense or crystals or something like that. And I'm not meaning to insult anyone kind of with more of a new age mindset, but that's also not what I mean. And for some people, spirituality is synonymous with religion. It's that the two are, are completely wedded. And that's also not what I mean. In going to the Oxford Dictionary, it says, the quality of being concerned with the human spirit. And in the Cambridge Dictionary, it says the quality that involves deep feelings and beliefs of a religious nature rather than the physical parts of life. So for me, combining the two, it's of or having to be concerned with the human spirit rather than the physical parts of life. So what is that? Sometimes I describe it as like, it's everything a monkey doesn't do. So a monkey can, you know, <laughs> seek shelter. A monkey wants sex. A monkey wants to eat food. A monkey wants social status in its in its tribe. Um, those are all things. So what's left for for us? It's the human heart. It's seeking transcendence, creating works of art, creating works of selfless service, cultivating what I would call spiritual qualities. Some could call them character traits and leadership qualities of kindness, of compassion, of humility, of honesty, of creativity. And these to me are all kind of evidences, facets of the divine. You can look at them in a number of different ways. You could just look at them as common sense, nice to be around human qualities. But all of these to me have to do with the human spirit. So I'm talking about a spiritual revolution. I'm talking about a revolution that 
has not to do with the physical parts of life, but the aspects relating to the human spirit. I love that you went to the dictionary. That would be my first <laughs> my first go-to before trying to figure out where else I could learn about something. So I do think it's important to define our terms and to recognize we all have different ways of defining the terms. So it's like I could go up to someone and say spirituality and they have such a different experience of that. Mm -hmm. And you end up trying to speak in the color blue, but really it's received in the color red. So I think that's, yeah, powerful. And you mentioned in the book, you talked about the nuns, which are N-O-N-E-S. Yeah. It's part of the kind of group I'm a part of, which is, you know, when you think of millennials and people in Gen Z who say, you know, I'm spiritual, not religious. I, for example, grew up in a Christian household and I went to church most Sundays until, you know, sports and everything else got in the way and then found my way back to a sense of the connection to the human spirit. And that for me was less about religion and was more about that connection to myself, something greater. And to your point, to other people in high quality relationships. When we think about that versus what's going on in the world right now and people, you know, feeling more disconnected than ever, even though we have so much social media, we're surrounded by screens, we're often surrounded by people. Gosh, I live in New York. I'm always around people. But we find that so many of us are lonely. How do you connect the dots between those two? That's a profound question and could be a subject of its own book. And I will say that, I, you know, I wrote Soul Boom to be for everyone. From, from atheists and agnostics to people that are born-again Christian and religious fundamentalists, and, and, and especially the nuns, the spiritual, because they're called nuns, folks, for you check on the box, none of the above when it comes to religion, but especially nuns, because I, I feel like culturally what we've done, and I say in the book, we've thrown the spiritual baby out with the religious bathwater through large parts of the United States, especially, and other parts of the Western world, we have jettisoned religion and organized religion, a lot of times for very good reasons. Uh, this is not a book encouraging anyone to become a member of any specific religion, or it has no agenda around that. What it has an agenda around is these touchstones of conversations around life's biggest questions that have been explored through a spiritual and religious lens since the dawn of time. Some of the oldest texts known to humanity are the Vedas and Upanishads from 4,000 years ago that deal with all this stuff. They deal with literally the meaning of life and finding connection. And in these fractured times, we need this more than ever. It can be a solace and a balm, B-A-L-M, to us individually. And these tools can also be used to create community. And I think that's what you're talking about. Again, we're going back to this word community, because in jettisoning religion, we have also jettisoned community to in a large regard. And again, I'm not advocating to go back into any specific religion or anything like that. But we do have to look at the fact that oftentimes it was our churches that brought people together to pray, to sing, to serve together, and that most precious of spiritual outlets brought to us by our native indigenous brothers and sisters, the potluck. <laughs> so maybe that's where it starts, Leah. We need to start with more potlucks. We have a potluck. <laughs> I think we need a LinkedIn potluck. Everyone needs to bring a hot dish. I would do that. <laughs> we used to go to potlucks. No joke, my dad... He invented a casserole and it was, I'll never- How do you invent a casserole? I know. 
he was a brilliant man and he invented a casserole and it was, and I'm not kidding you, scalloped potatoes and then cream of mushroom soup and then tater tots and then bako bits and melted cheese. That's all he would do is like scalloped potatoes, (laughs) cream of mushroom, tater tots, cheese, bacon bits, stick it in the oven half an hour later pure deliciousness. And that was always our go-to item for for potlucks. And you'd eat it and be comatose afterwards. (laughs) Absolutely. But it it was the seventies. That was, that's just what you ate. It was, it was meatloaf and spaghetti and tater tots. We're taking a quick break. When we get back, Rain talks about how to explore our own purpose and consciousness. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back with Rain Wilson. So talking about this idea of the nuns and the people who are, you know, many of us who are in the millennial generation or who, in, who are in Gen Z that might be saying we're spiritual, not religious, might be kind of going, I don't really know what I am. I'm curious what you would recommend or how you'd recommend we get connected to ourselves. And one of the examples you talked about that I loved is the book by Anne Lamott that's Help Thanks Wow. And that's just, it stuck with me. And that's how you partially connect every day is like getting into this meditative or prayerful, I should say, state. Not everyone feels like that's accessible. Not everybody's like, yeah, I meet so many people who are like, I'm not a meditator. I don't know what to do. And so again, feels like there's this group of people who do it. And then there's this group of people who don't. And your book's all about bringing everyone in. So how do you recommend we spend more time connected to our spirits? That's such a great and important question and and a practical one too. Thank you very much. Right outside this window here, I have a little bench. I sit out most every morning, I'd say five or six mornings a week, and I meditate. And it's really, there's a wealth of information about meditation out there. There's apps and all kinds of literature. And it's really important to understand that you work in the tech industry. Meditation for me is like rebooting your computer or your phone. When it's all clogged up with apps and it's not working. And sometimes you're just like, well, just restart it. And you restart it and it goes, and then all of a sudden everything works smoothly again. You're like, what did I do? I just restarted it. But that's kind of what meditation does. and 
frankly, that's about how long meditation can take. You can do it for five minutes or 10 minutes. Oftentimes, my meditation in the morning is about 10 minutes long. And here's how it works for me. I connect to my breath. When we are in our breath, we're in the moment. Because if you're really focusing on your breath, you have to stay in the moment. And the breath is the stuff of life. Breath gives us oxygen. It allows us to have thoughts. It allows us to have feelings. There's so much that is connected to the breath. Then we oftentimes live in our brains and in our minds, which are very valuable tools. Like, where are my keys? What do I have at two o'clock? Where did I leave that you know, plate of salad I wanted to eat? Oh, shoot, I forgot to call my mother-in-law. All of this, this very scattershot brain that we use through much of the day is crucially important. However, it's not our reality. And when you meditate, you have this beautiful sensation of like stepping aside from your brain. The Buddhists call it the monkey mind. You step aside from the monkey mind. You allow it to release. You notice your thoughts. So what is that about us when we're in a station where we can actually notice what we're thinking, where we step aside from our own selves? So who is that self? What is that self? That is the witness to us being alive. So we have our witness self and our breath self. And in the doing, we are rebooting our computer of consciousness. It gets us more grounded, more focused. It increases dopamine, increases well-being. It allows us to focus with more clarity throughout the day. And it's a tool that's there for us at any time. And I want to say also that, and I'm glad you mentioned uh, Annie's book, help, thanks, wow. Oftentimes people leave off prayer because they're like, I don't know if I believe in a God or, you know, when I was a kid, my parents would make me pray all the time. I have a resentment against prayer. Like, what am I supposed to say? And her beautiful little book is all about, those are the three essential prayers. You can ask for help. You can say a prayer of gratitude. Thanks. You know, thanks for letting me be healthy. Thanks for this beautiful microphone. Thanks for this beautiful meditation bench, whatever it is. And you can also just pray in wow. And wow might be a great place to start. What is what is wow? Awe, wonder, curiosity. You can just, again, commune with your spirit to the spirit of the universe itself, to nature. A connection to nature is an invaluable part of meditation. And to just say, wow. This is gorgeous, and I'm just drinking this in one breath at a time. Mm. You know, part of my studies have taken me to positive psychology, which is the science of human flourishing. So it's essentially like, how do we add science to this understanding of why we're all here, what we do here to make it great? And gratitude, that thanks, is such a huge part of it. And I can remember a time where, you know, I'd be at LinkedIn, I was in other roles, and we'd start meetings with gratitude. And I'd be like, oh, I don't want to do this. And now I realize I'm probably the one that needed it most, <laughs> because I was the one who didn't want it. Um, but once you start actually doing it, they've seen that scientifically, it changes your outlook, it changes the way you look at your next week ahead, it changes the way you interact with people around you. Um, like these are real things. And so part of why I love that you're sharing this, and that you do talk about science in this book is that, you know, 
we've got to get better at making sure that we don't throw out the spiritual baby with the scientific bathwater either, you mm -hmm. know, um, that we are aware of science and that we're also aware of spirituality, that actually they are oftentimes not all that different. They're inextricably connected and that there is positivity and power for us in both of those. So my, you know, a lot of what I'm hoping to do and what I see you doing is to explore things in such a deep way that I can translate it to make it feel accessible, but also to say, you know, here's what we really understand about this. This isn't just me spouting things out. This isn't just Rain Wilson deciding he wants to write a random book and tell people what to do with their spirituality. It's saying, here's how this can support you in living your life. And part of what you said in the book is that consciousness is the next like scientific revolution. And so I'm curious about that. Like, I'm going to stop there. Tell me about that. Oh, you made so many great points in there. I'm just going back a little bit, unraveling positive psychology, which is a very recent field of study, by the way. It didn't exist in the 1980s. It just started in the 90s. Positive psychology links up with spiritual wisdom and faith-based spiritual traditions and writings, holy texts, in incredible ways. In some ways, you could say the Buddha was the original positive psychologist because so much of what positive psychology is learning from hard data is mirrored in the Dhammapadas of the Buddha. So that's important to note. And gratitude is one of them. And gratitude exists in every faith tradition and has been shown to be one of the superpowers of positive psychology. So when you express gratitude, it shifts our mode of being from anxiety and discontent. The Buddha said, life is suffering. But what word he used was dukkha, in Pali or Sanskrit, which means uh, anxious discontent. Life is anxious discontent. So gratitude shifts us away from anxious discontent. Now, anxious discontent kept us alive for millennia. You know, it's like, oh, there's a, there's a lion in the bushes out there, or I don't have enough beef jerky in my cave, and I'm worried I'm going to make it through the winter. So this anxious discontent kept human beings focused, vital, alive, and thriving, right? but it doesn't always serve us. And I know this having an anxiety disorder myself. So gratitude changes our perspective very subtly. It's like steering an ocean liner. You just steer it by 1% and it ends up on a different continent, right? So gratitude can do the same thing. I have a gratitude text chain every morning. I text a bunch of my buddies, five things I'm grateful for. And as silly as it sounds, it sounds like kindergarten, but it really actually helps. So I wanted to give full attention to that. Consciousness. Now we're on to this startling, ramshackle, wonderful, delightful field of consciousness. I love it. There is what scientists call the hard problem of consciousness. And the chief scientist in this field is a guy named David Chalmers. You can look up his work online. He's absolutely amazing. Very hard scientist but he's challenging a lot of the materialist kind of neuroscientists by saying, hey, consciousness doesn't really make sense with any of the existing models that we have. The brain model of consciousness, like thoughts are thoughts equal electronic neuropathways and neurochemical explosions, and then uh, memories are so stored like a computer in a data bank that's not how it works. It doesn't track. Can you do brain scans and learn about what people might be thinking or feeling a little bit? Yes, you can, a little bit. Will that science get better? It will. But science can't explain the mystery 
majesty, and mysticism of human consciousness. Falling in love, having a memory, you know, smelling a flower and remembering when you were a teenager and you smelled the same flower, writing a poem, interconnection, the internal 3D sensoratory movie of being Rain Wilson in the world, what things taste, feels, and the, how evocative things are. These are not explained from a purely scientific model. And there's there's a lot of mystery and wonder in the field of consciousness, and it's a great place to start when thinking about spiritual themes. You know, I love that we could go down a whole rabbit hole around consciousness. So, so we won't we won't do that, but I love that you use examples like falling in love or having a memory, the the things that we can't quite explain, but that we know absolutely exist. When I go down this rabbit hole and come back out and try to explain this to people or explain what I'm learning or what I'm still wondering, because I think I'm often just still left wondering, people ask, you know, it's kind of like, why? So I, I want to ask you, like, for the sake of what, when you think of exploring all of this, asking these questions, creating a spiritual connection, like, what is the goal in the outcome that I don't even want to say goal because I, I think that actually may feel a little bit too productivity based. But what is the experience that you believe can be cultivated or result from going on this path? I keep complimenting your questions, but you're really, really good. <laughs> I will talk about a goal, actually. My goal in talking about something like consciousness or something like gratitude, or I have a chapter on death, I have a chapter on God. I have a chapter on sacredness, finding the sacred and the holy in our lives. My goal in kind of beginning the book with these big spiritual themes is to lead the reader toward an understanding that these life's biggest human questions and the spiritual aroma, that's not the right word, but that's the word I'm going to use. The spiritual moment that they evoke lead us towards an understanding that things right now are not working. And this is very important. It's, again, it's the third reason why I wrote the book. Number one, grew up high. Number two, mental health issues. Number three, I believe passionately that humanity needs the messages that are found in the spiritual traditions to help transform itself and to grow more wise, and to save itself. I quote a poem early on in the book by William Carlos Williams that says, it is not easy to get the news from poems, right? Because what are poems about? They're about the human experience and love and life and nature and, and memory and sensation. Yet men die miserable every day from lack of what is found in poems. And I would say, Men die miserable every day from lack of what is found in the spiritual traditions and writings uh, and mystical holy texts. We are in the midst of a mental health epidemic with young people that is killing us. It's tearing us apart. Suicides have tripled over the last 15 or 20 years. Over 50% of college students say they suffer from debilitating anxiety. Over a third have depression and over a quarter have had suicidal ideation. And the Surgeon General of the United States has declared loneliness as kind of the next big epidemic in the United States. So 
men are dying miserable from lack of what is found in poetry and in spirituality. So, you know, where am I going with all of this? I'm going towards the idea that from militarism to abject nationalism to racism to sexism to income inequality, all of these issues that humanity is facing, we tend to deal with them legislatively and politically, right? We pick a party and we say, well, free markets are going to fix this problem, or the other side says, no, more government regulation is going to fix this problem, or, or some something in between, right? But I'm suggesting that these issues are a spiritual disease at their core, and legislation and protest and regulation are simply putting Band-Aids on a much deeper problem because humanity is disconnected from its true purpose, from its true meaning, from compassion itself, which is what needs to drive us. So the later chapters in the book really deal with this idea of a spiritual revolution, which is shifting our perspective completely to help shift and change the very systems themselves and how they run. We are running our systems on aggression, one-upsmanship, backstabbing, survival of the fittest, every man for himself, don't tread on me, live free or die, dog eat dog. You know, the list goes on and on of this kind of way of being in the marketplace, this way of being online, this way of being in all of our systems like healthcare, like education. These worser devils of the human nature are driving our systems and we need to rethink them foundationally. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's, it's interesting because a lot of times when you bring things like this up, I think it's easy when you don't feel like you're in power to say, well, that's just the way it is, you know, or those are idealistic points of view. And one of the ways that I think we can feel a little more empowered in how, you know, each of us operates, because not all of us are people who have immediate or direct influence on all legislation, we have some, is to get clearer on how we want to live and how we want to impact, you know, I call it our corner of the world, whatever that is, whether it's, you know, just you and your close group of friends or you and your partner or you and your family, whatever it is. Um, I think that there is would be so much change in the world if we could each find this kind of sense of purpose, which it's interesting. I said earlier that I didn't think a lot had changed except that we needed this work more since the pandemic. But what became very obvious during the pandemic is in the corporate world, this feeling of purposelessness, which, you know, it was like Beyonce's Break My Soul came out and everybody was like, I'm out of here. Like, you know, they're not taking my life from me, etc. But I think what that really was about is this like crisis of purposelessness, right? Mm. And I wonder, as you think about work, you think about the fact that most of us have to get up every day and go somewhere and do something and be paid for that thing the way it is today, especially, you know, in the U.S. and in most places in the world. How do you connect this to the concept of purpose and how do we get more of that feeling of purposefulness in our lives? Well, things are going to get a little dark. Leah, are you ready? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I was trying to bring them up, but sure, yeah. let's go. Let's go down to go up. <laughs> In my chapter, death and how to live it, I say, you know, when creating your life, it's important to start at the very end. And I do think that, you know, and this is why I look at spiritual tools for some of these bigger concepts. Like you, you talk about purposelessness. I love that word. It's a very powerful word. So 
purpose and meaning for me are synonymous in a lot of ways. And honestly, one of the ways that I derive purpose and meaning is in pondering death. And this is a topic that, and there might be a lot of people going, Mm -hmm. I don't want to talk about death. Oh, I don't want to think about it. You know, in our culture right now, we don't think about it. We don't talk about it. We don't have a cultural expression of what death is, what happens when we die. We don't talk to our kids about it. We're not kind of living with it. It's very, we're very detached from it. It happens over in a funeral home and, and we don't like to think about it. But I do think when we realize like how precious our life is and how short our life is, it can help give us purpose and meaning. It's interesting too, because for a lot of young people, they did studies and a lot of Gen Z people for years when people were looking for a job, they would answer a questionnaire about what was most important to them. And for decades on decades, it was always the same thing. It was kind of like, you know, making a good living, being a part of a nice team, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And those are all important things. You know, a short commute is an important thing. But all of a sudden, about 10 years ago, making a difference and making an impact uh, and making the world a better place in one's work shot to the top of the list out of nowhere. This was this really strange thing that social scientists were finding. Why all of a sudden were 25-year-olds like at the top of the list, like making an impact and making a difference? Because people are searching for meaning and searching for purpose. And fortunately, there are a lot of companies that have incorporated that into their DNA. And I don't know much about LinkedIn, but I know that, you know, theoretically, you know, linking people, providing them with resources to find better jobs and to connect is really important. This is something that didn't exist in this way 15 years ago. It just didn't exist. And the resources that it has provided people, if they're hungry for them and they want to change their life and open their parameters, they can access it. Uh, I'm not trying to kiss LinkedIn butt, but I'm just saying that. Uh, Sounds like it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm saying that uh, I don't even have an account. They keep You guys keep sending me emails. <laughs> I don't have an account. And it's like, Rain Wilson, your LinkedIn is like, I never set up a LinkedIn. What are you talking about? We'll get you set up later. I don't want to be set up. <laughs> I don't want any more websites in my life. I want more ferns in my life. That's fair. Um, and pet pigs. <laughs> yeah. There's two things that purpose and meaning are more and more important to young people. They're often disconnected from them. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes a contemplation of death And the Stoics were really good at this, right? Of ancient Greece and Rome, really good at framing how beautiful, wonderful, miraculous, and exciting life is by contemplating death. And I bet you at LinkedIn didn't think that the guy from the office was going to be talking to you about death today. (laughs) Boom. Here we are. Listen, I love that you threw it in the very beginning of the book. So on the idea of purpose, I'm actually going to pass it to one of my colleagues, Jimmy, who's in Utah, who has a question for you that I think is going to tie in really well and help us move toward this idea of spiritual revolution and purpose out in the world. So Jimmy, over to you. Thanks, Leah. Hey, Rain, way cool of you to join us. Thank you. My name's Jim. 
But unlike that guy who mistreated you for so many years, I'm a big fan of yours. Thanks. One of my favorite things you did was a speech at USC about a decade ago. And you talked about paper, something your time at Dunder Mifflin makes you uniquely qualified to discuss. You told the graduates there, you said, let your diplomas or these pieces of paper lead you on a quest to find your soul and not on a journey to try and gain the whole world. Can you talk about that, the kind of dichotomy of money or purpose? Right, and that's a quote from the Bible. Uh, you know, what profiteth him who gaineth the whole world and loses his soul, right? Thank you so much for referencing that and bringing that up. I think that I talk to a lot of college students and there's such a lot of pressure on them to achieve and to have everything figured out at a very young age. It's really too bad. I mean, people are going into college, like, what's your major? They're 18. They haven't even like taken a class yet. And they're already talking about what their career should be. And they feel this incredible pressure to have the right major with the right professor and the right grades and the right test scores and the right internships during the summer and to have everything figured out and the right graduate program and exactly what they're going to be doing. Now, I understand financial pressures. I came from a very poor family and I understand what it means to be to be seeking a college degree in order to be able to pay the bills. You know, I'm not I'm not knocking that. It's it's crucial. But, you know, again, let's go back to the deep rich spiritual traditions, wisdom traditions, holy writings, education and the process of being a human being it's a journey. It's a sacred journey. It's a pilgrimage from the beginning of your life to the end of your life. And that journey is about learning and growing and maturing, developing the spiritual qualities that we all have within us, kindness, humility, honesty, compassion. And it might take a while. So again, this incredible pressure that young people feel, which is really contributing to the mental health epidemic, to have everything figured out by the time they're 24 and a half is not doing them any favors. And to read books, to fall in love, to travel, to experience nature, to meditate, contemplate, ruminate, and fully develop will lead to a life of greater well-being. And isn't that what it's ultimately about in the end? Sure, can making a good living contribute to well-being? It can to an extent to a very small extent, actually. But there's so much more to living a good, rich, fulfilled, purpose-filled, meaningful life than that. And we need to guide our young people and have them understand this life's rich, beautiful pilgrimage to spiritual wisdom and maturity. You know, you've talked about some heavy topics. We've talked about some very real topics. And I actually don't even want to use heavy because in positive psychology, they discovered these 24 character strengths um, that are universal and global, one of which is humor. When I think about some of the people that I revere who I, you know, see as incredibly spiritual people, one of them is someone named Father Richard Rohr, which I don't know if you're um, familiar with him, but he is one of the lightest, most humorous people. And so I, I say this to say this kind of exploration, these kinds of conversations aren't 
heavy to make people feel like, oh my God, there's so many problems in the world. It's to say like, look at all the light that's available to us. Look at all of the joy and the humor that's available to us. If only we'll sort of open up our curiosity and peel back things that maybe we believed weren't necessary that perhaps are. So Rain, I'm going to change topics real fast because you have a show coming out too. And I want you to talk about Geography of Bliss quickly so everybody knows what that is and we can tune in. Yeah. And I want to say in referencing Richard Rohr, I really truly believe that the most spiritually arrived people have that lightness and that humor. I haven't met the Dalai Lama, but everything I've seen of the Dalai Lama and read and listened to and people that have met him, like, he's almost like a kid. You know, he's like an 80, three-year-old child just laughing and peals of laughter and hugs and and jokes and and a beautiful lightness. So that is the goal. That's where we're we want to head, definitely. And speaking of that, on my TV show, which just came out on the Peacock streaming network, I hope people will invest in the Peacock streaming network. There's so many bad ones. Let the other ones go. Peacock has some great shows. I'm now (laughs) stumping for Peacock. But The Geography of Bliss, a travel show, and I go around the world, and instead of sampling delicious food, I am looking for happiness, for joy, for fulfillment. So we went to Iceland, one of the world's happiest countries. We went to Bulgaria, one of the world's unhappiest countries. We went to Ghana, West Africa, one of the world's most optimistic countries. And we went to Thailand which has a deep, rich spiritual tradition that helps fuel its kind of identity as one of the happiest nations on earth. And I learned a ton. It was really amazing. I got to meet some absolutely incredible people. And speaking of the Dalai Lama, I got to meet in the Thailand episode, which is my personal favorite one. I met this incredible monk, this chain-smoking monk. He's smoking nonstop. (laughs) I didn't know monks could do that. Surrounded by stray dogs. I didn't either. (laughs) Yeah. And he's got all these rescue dogs. So there's like literally like 15 dogs at his feet and he's chain smoking, laughing, and he tells your fortune and he meditates and um, really a beautiful soul and uh, really got a lot out of that episode. And it was a beautiful journey and uh, it's very uplifting, fun for the whole family. Check it out. I love it. I got Peacock because they moved The Office off of Netflix over to Peacock, so I can't wait to watch. Another plug. So, Rain, I'm going to have you answer these three statements. The first is, better humans are? Living in service to other humans. Better work is? Better work is aligned with mind, spirit, and body. And a better world has? Less drive-throughs? There's none in San Luis Obispo. Really? But <laughs> that doesn't help us much. No, it's illegal. It's a beautiful little town, San Luis Obispo. <laughs> it is. I went to school there. Let's bring it back. To, you know, a better world is is made up of lots of different communities. The metaphor that I go to at the end of the book is like how humanity is like the human body. Like we need to celebrate our diversity. Thank God our body is made up of, you know, a kidney and a heart and lungs and all these different eyes and all these different organs. And we celebrate their diversity. Their diversity is needed to create a holistic whole and all working in harmony and harmoniously together, although very different for the same end. So that's what we need to strive to make humanity more like a human body. 
not like my human body. My my human body is it's failing me. It's a little flabby. And it's a good my body is a good punchline. That's why I always took my shirt off during the office. They're like, shoot, we need another uh we need another joke. We need a laugh here. Like, let's have Dwight take his shirt off. <laughs> so, oh my God. Well, I'm it's still working and I'm glad it's your Earth Rover. So it I'm is glad it's working. Yes. Um, Rain, there's a question you asked that I, I'd love to just share with everybody who's listening. If you're still feeling like, oh, I don't know how to even approach this topic. And I will say I didn't approach this topic with anyone publicly until I had spent a little bit of time just getting to know it myself. So if that's where you're at, great. But the question you asked, Rain, is what is one eye-opening experience that everyone should have? And I felt like that question, for those of you listening, could be a really powerful kind of gateway into what spirituality means for you, what is sacred for you. And so I'm going to leave everybody with that. And with that, Rain, thank you so much. Everybody go out and get Soul Boom. And I cannot wait to watch the geography of bliss. Thank you for joining us. And Rain, amazing to have you here. Thank you so much, Leah. It was just a pleasure and an honor. And everyone, the whole team has just been delightful. And I had so much fun in this conversation. Thanks. That was Rain Wilson, a.k.a. Dwight Troop, co-founder of Soul Pancake, author of Soul Boom, and spiritual revolution leader. I'm just going to leave you with that question that Rain asked us all to consider on our way to rediscovering our spirits, our souls, and our connection. What's one eye-opening experience that everyone should have? That's your breadcrumb. That is your clue. That's where you experience some part of the divine. Now, the challenge is, How can you bring more of that feeling, that experience into your everyday life? If this episode has you inspired to explore more of your own spirituality, take a minute to share with someone else who could benefit from more purpose, more meaning, or simply the space to slow down and reconnect and help other people like you find our show by leaving us a rating before you go. Even better, write a one sentence review telling me how this conversation impacted you. I know it totally changed me. And as always, you can find me on LinkedIn, writing about human potential and meaningful living. In the Arena is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Alexis Ramdow and Rafa Fariha. Today, special thanks to the LinkedIn Media Productions team and to our video team for their help in this conversation, as well as to the Speaker Series crew, including Rochelle Diamond, for making this happen. Enrique Montalvo is the executive producer of LinkedIn Editorial Productions. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of LinkedIn original audio and video. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart. Thanks for joining me today, and I'll see you next week.